0: This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin.
1: I absolutely love reading books about filmmaking and movies and actors. I know that's a huge shock with the type of show that I'm doing, but that's the truth. I love reading books about filmmaking. And one of my absolute favorite books on the subject is by Jeff Sass. He wrote a book called Everything I Know About Business and Marketing I Learned from the Toxic Avenger One Man's Journey to Hell's Kitchen and Back. An established and successful chief marketing officer and entrepreneur, once upon a time, Jeff Sass spent seven years making low-budget action horror films for the legendary independent movie studio Troma, home of the Toxic Avenger. It turns out there's a lot of similarities between filmmaking and starting companies, and the lessons Jeff learned making B-movies have served him well in the C-suite. This book is full of practical business and marketing insight and inspiration drawn from the often comical trials and tribulations of creating cult classic independent films. Sass shares lessons learned from his experiences, ranging from rabbit grannies to reading Rainbow. Yes, at one time, Choma actually represented licensing rights to the Emmy Award-winning PBS TV series, and he clearly turns his tales of movie-making mayhem into useful nuggets of business and marketing wisdom applicable to any industry including yours. I'm so excited to share this interview with Jeff Sass. It was recorded about a year ago when I was testing out another podcast format and the interview was too good to leave on the cutting room floor. So I want to bring back this incredible interview with Jeff Sass. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the show, talking about your experience with trauma. So when I found out I confirmed this interview with you, I ended up binge-watching all the movies you produced. So Trauma's War, uh, Toxic Avenger 2 through 4. I even watched the infomercial you directed, which was actually my favorite of the group of things that I watched. And to be honest, I've always respected Trauma because I respect the guts of anyone who makes independent movies. Because it's not an easy task at all. To be honest, there's something about trauma films, even when the specific movie's not for me, that I kind of find myself admiring... And I was trying to figure out as I was watching him what makes trauma stand out. What is it that really appeals to me? Really, it just feels like there's a lot of passion put into them. They can feel by design campy, crude, um, schlocky, or silly. You mentioned all that stuff in your book, but they never feel soulless. There's kind of this weird thing like when there's a huge car stunt, there's a great gore gag or something that's over the top. You can kind of feel like the excitement of the crew kind of dripping through the screen. There's a huge car flip that you mentioned in the book that's repeated over and over again. And I could almost hear in my mind as I'm watching it like the crew going, yeah, let's do it again. Like that was awesome. And you kind of explain that passion in the last chapter of the book where you say the credits at the end of the film are mesmerizing for some. We look through the regular sounding names of regular people and realize they've had the irregular opportunity to participate in the glamorous experience of making a movie. And your story especially really captures the idea that if enough people are motivated by this goal of doing something and come together, there's really nothing they can't do, even something as impossible as making a movie. So thanks for coming on the show for this incredible book and being willing to share a peek behind the curtain can you share a little bit about how you got involved in the filmmaking world and with trauma specifically?
0: Sure, thank you, Eric, and uh, thanks thanks for having me. It's uh, great great to be here and to talk to you. Um, yeah, you, you touched on a, on a lot of um, great points in that introduction, but I think you know a word that struck out to you is, is passion, and, and that's absolutely true. And I'll get back to how I got into it too. But I think you have to be passionate about what you're doing, even if it's not. For you, so you mentioned that right. you know not not every trauma movie may be someone's cup of tea, but I think part of what you find as a through line is is the auth- authenticity in that everyone working on those films was passionate about making the film, mm-hmm. regardless of how silly it might have been or how campy it was or or schlocky to, to use those words. That didn't matter when you were on the set and involved in it. All that mattered was doing the best job you could making the gag work to, you know make the scene work make the film as good as it could be in that genre of films and and I think in an independent film the opportunity to express that passion is is very great because there are no hard lines between people's responsibilities so everyone right. can really feel like they're contributing something and and that they have a purpose that's bigger than themselves and bigger than their particular role because they can step into many different roles in the context of an independent production, so I think that's kind of, I think that's what you're feeling when you see the when you say that there's that kind of through line through all the films. It's that kind of passion and authenticity, regardless of the the nature of the content. I, I started out so in, in college, I studied uh, English and theater arts and creative writing, and was very interested in getting into you know something to do with production. And when I graduated college, I, I went to work for a company called Satori Entertainment, which was a distributor. of of primarily, uh, we became very well known as the leading distributor of English language foreign films. So that was films from Australia, New Zealand, and Great Britain, and we would uh, acquire the US rights to these films and bring them in. And I enjoyed that end of the business very much, but I really wanted to also get into production. And I was fortunate that at Satori, we also produced a talk show on cable TV, and I got to wet my feet on the creative production side, working on that show and eventually going on to produce that show. But eventually I ended up leaving to try to pursue more directly, um, the production side of things. And, um, during that time, I, I worked on some independent projects myself and I had reached out to the trauma guys, uh, Lloyd and Michael, Lloyd Kaufman and Michael hers, the founders of trauma. When I was at Satori to try and get the rights to syndicate some of the trauma movies for television um, that never happened, but I kind of hit it off with Lloyd and Michael, um, right. and we got along very well and When I was working independently on my own, they hired me to write a screenplay for them based on a treatment that they had written so that was exciting to me, even though it was little or no money, but it was exciting to get an actual writing assignment and even you know albeit for trauma and right. uh, that was really the first uh, thing I did for trauma was to write this uh, screenplay for them before I actually worked there full-time. And, and then one thing led to another, and uh, an opportunity came to, to join them full-time, although even that was not in a production role. You know, the way Troma works, and, and many production companies, they, they staff up for actual productions, and in between, it's a pretty lean operation. And so there were no right. full-time positions in production. So I ended up starting my job uh, at Troma, starting there working on the home video sales and TV sales. Um, you know, this was still pretty early in the days of the home video distribution business. So, but I just figured if I got my foot in the door, um, once it was time for them go- to go into production, I would figure out a way to weasel my way onto the production <laughs> side. And that's that's essentially what I did.
1: Even before officially being part of the Troma team, and you emphasize so heavily, like the fact that it is a team environment, it seems like Lloyd really gave you an opportunity to get collaborative right off the bat when he showed you the trailer for what became their biggest franchise, the the first Toxic Avenger movie. Um, can you talk about that first experience meeting Lloyd? And in the book, you hit really hard on the fact that it was such a unique experience. I mean, in a lot of ways, a very unique experience. But just the opportunity that he gave you to speak into a project that he was working on. And he actually took a pretty big piece of advice from you that most most people probably in his position would have just brushed off or ignored. Can you talk about that first meeting?
0: Absolutely, and 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 you're right. I mean, one of the things, and the book, the, the premise of the book, by the way, is is really to glean actual useful business and marketing lessons from my experiences of trauma. And and the story you're alluding to, Eric, I think, was a very good lesson. And that is that you know you never know where a good idea is going to come from, and, and you need to be open to accept good ideas, uh, regardless right. of their source and, and, and not be so beholden to something because it's yours. So the very first time I visited with Lloyd and Michael at the, the infamous trauma building on Ninth Avenue, and 50th Street, they were giving me a tour of the office, Lloyd was, and he took me up to the editing room up on the fourth floor. And back then, you know, this was film editing on a, on a flatbed, you know, where you literally cut and splice the film. And he was working on a new trailer for The Toxic Avenger. The movie had already been released, but they were working on a new trailer for it. He showed me the trailer and then asked what I thought. And to be honest, my my initial reaction was the trailer was kind of dry and pretty straightforward. And I think the tagline was something like a different kind of hero. Um, and it was just very bland. And he says, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know... I don't know if it really reflects my understanding of what the movie is about. He says, what do you mean? You know, I said, well, (laughs) uh, you know, I, I I don't think I had actually seen the movie yet, but I had heard that that it's kind of humorous that part of the appeal to it was that it was kind of a humorous, gory superhero movie. And I said, isn't there some humor in it? And I said, he said, yes, very funny. Well, I said, you know, there's no, that's not reflected any, you know, in, in the, in the trailer and the kind of the tagline, it's really dry. And he's, Gets a little bit huffy. and says, "Well, what would you say?" You know. And I thought about it for a moment, and I said, "Well, the Toxic Avenger is from New Jersey, right?" He says, "Yes, he's from Trowebill, New Jersey." So I said, "Well, why don't you call him the first superhero from New Jersey?" You know, because that's <laughs> right. kind of tongue in cheek. You know, back then, especially New Jersey was kind of like the armpit of the Northeast, and New right. Yorkers were always making fun of New Jersey and. And so it seemed to give kind of a wink at the audience that there's some humor in here too by calling him the first superhero from New Jersey, and uh, Lloyd was oh I like that I like that can I use it and I said sure you know, uh, and and sure enough he went ahead and they changed the trailer and they changed the posters and they changed everything and that became to this day you know the tagline for the movie and I think what was interesting was a that I wasn't afraid to open my mouth and just give an opinion you know which sometimes. Right with someone you you never met before as people are afraid to do. But more importantly, that Lloyd actually heard my opinion in a way that allowed him to say to himself, you know, all right, this is actually better than the idea he had and let's go with it and make, make the changes and spend the money to make the changes. And and even though he didn't know me from a hole in the wall at that point, I was literally a guy off the street. um, But he recognized something that was going to be helpful and better. And I think the lesson there is a, to be open to good ideas like Lloyd was and and not uh, worry about where they of those ideas are, but, but be open to it. And then D from my end, you know, share your ideas, be helpful. Like, like I could have kept my mouth shut and says, well, I'm not going to give these guys my
1: good ideas. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: But instead I was happy to share it and let them have it. And, and, you know, obviously it led to uh, a long and fruitful and fun and friendly career and friendship. So, um, you know, I think that was a good lesson from that, uh, interaction between us.
1: Right. Yeah. It's so different than what you typically hear from a Hollywood story where, you know, you have execs trying to add studio notes just so they can say that they added something or, you know, this environment of, you know, in any creative field arguing over who gets the credit for something. And one of the things you hit over and over again, and it just deepened my respect for kind of the trauma atmosphere is the way that Lloyd Kaufman and, um, you know, everyone at Troma really pounded the idea of there not being an I in team. We're all going to put this together. Every Troma production is a Troma team release. Can you talk a little bit about that environment? And there's so many creatives that embrace what you, you know, you call in the book, the auteur theory, where I'm going to be in control of every piece of every part of this production. But can you talk about the creative side from a team perspective, and how that kind of fostered creativity throughout your career with trauma.
0: Yeah, I think you know, I think it 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 comes from two two sides of the coin. I mean, on one side of the coin that's Lloyd's nature that that's who he is. Right. Like he is that kind of person that that um, is not that hung up over his own ideas and wants to create something, and and he enjoys the collaborative process and the collaboration. Um, but the other side of the coin is, I think, it grew somewhat out of necessity too, because if you're in a low budget environment um, where you want to get people to do as much as they can for as little as possible, um, the one thing you can give them is opportunity. The one thing you can give them is, is the chance to contribute. That doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you anything to, to accept good ideas right. from someone who might be a PA or, or a pizza delivery guy or, or whatever. So I think that the culture that was created at Troma was very much so that, look, we have no money. We have a, a, an idea and a vision and a mission to, to make this movie and to make it as good as we can, even if it's a silly movie. Um, and in order to do so, we're opening our arms to everyone to contribute anything you can. If You have a certain mm. skill. Let's put that skill to use. If you have a certain interest, that's going to mean you'll work harder for less pay because it gives you a chance to pursue that interest. Let's do it. You know, And that that right. that uh, culture. Um, is always there and that's why so many people even people who've gone on for for big careers uh, got their start at Trauma because Trauma gave them a chance to write that first script or direct that first scene or light that first set or build the first set or whatever it was so you mm-hmm. have you know people who were Assistants getting their first shot as being the real deal on a trauma film and yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera So I think that was the culture and the I Versus we was really funny because it was it was literally a rule, you know When when we were corresponding if you were writing a letter or typing an email when, when computers finally arrived <laughs> Any correspondence outside of trauma had to begin with greetings from Tromaville and always We you were never allowed to use the word I so even if mm. I even if I <laughs> Was writing to one person about a lunch appointment that I was having with that one person If I was putting it in writing, it would still have to say, greetings from Tromaville. We look forward to having lunch with you on Tuesday, you know, even though I'm the only one going to lunch. Everything was we. Um, That was very strictly enforced, whether it was Lloyd writing something or whether it was, you know, an unpaid uh, assistant who was there for a day writing something. There was no I Mm. in Tromaville. I mean. Technically, there's the letter I in the word tromerville <laughs> but we were not right. allowed to say I. And, 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 and that, again, that was another lesson that I really took to heart, you know, throughout my career because, you know, almost everything in business is collaborative, right? There are very right. few instances, unless you truly are a sole proprietor doing something that doesn't involve anyone else, there are very few instances where one person is responsible completely right. for a project. And yet, we've all been in those situations where you're in a meeting and someone stands up in front of the whole group and says, "I did this and I accomplished that," and blah 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 blah. And everyone right. else, you know, there's always four or five other people in the room who are part of that project who are now scratching their heads and saying, "What am I chopped liver? I, I,
1: I helped. Right.
0: You. I was part of that project." You know, and I think the notion of involving everyone by using we, by giving credit to everyone who was a part of a project, is a very valuable one not only in business, but in leadership. You know, if you're a manager, your job is not to make yourself look good. It's, it's to make your team look good. And if your team is perceived as having done a great job, then you look good as their manager. So it's never about you. It's always about, you know, your team. It's always about the we, unless you're, we work, then we was a bad thing.
1: So you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you, you hit on the fact and you mentioned the book over and over again, like no one's setting out to make a bad movie. The team was coming together to make the best movie they could. And I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think makes a good movie? Because, you know, I think trauma really embraces the fact that they do make movies that are not the mainstream type of movie that you're normally going to see. They really embrace that, that cult following the, the B movie aesthetic. So you know, some people look at that and be like, "Well, don't they? Aren't they in the business of making bad movies? Isn't that what they love doing?" And that's the brand that I love. So, what is a what is a good movie? What what makes a movie stand out?
0: Yeah. So I think uh, the you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So so a <laughs> right. good movie is a movie that satisfies the audience it was intended for, right? Mm. And that's why five different people can see the same movie and someone will say it's the worst movie I've ever seen. And someone else will say, wow, this was brilliant. And I loved every minute of it. So I think one of the things that I personally recognized and I talk about this in the book is, you know, even if some of the movies that Troma were making were, were not my cup of tea, so to speak, like not the kind of movie I would put on myself on a Friday night, right. choosing to watch a movie what I learned, what I recognized, was that you know, trauma had fans, and the fans, the trauma fans, loved the kind of crazy, mm. wild movie that trauma was making. So, for me to to excel in that environment, I had to be passionate. I always have to be passionate about anything I do to to enjoy doing it, to do it well. Right. So I may not have been passionate about the movies themselves. But what I was very passionate about was, number one, the filmmaking process. I really do and did love the the collaborative process of making the movies, the environment, being on the set, everything about it. I love the filmmaking process. Mm -hmm. So I was very passionate about the process, but I was also very passionate about serving our fans. I recognized you know, because I saw it firsthand that there really were people, and to this day, I run into people and they find out I worked for Trauma and they get so excited. <laughs> right. So I recognized that there were that there are uh, real fans of what Trauma was doing, and I got passionate about serving those fans. So right. I wanted to make the best damn Trauma movie I could make, not for me, but for the fans, right, for them right. to enjoy. And so, so in that regard, we wanted to make the best. Trauma movie we could make, not necessarily the best movie, you know, it wasn't going to be up there against other movies for, you know, uh, a picture of the year, but we wanted it to be the best movie for the trauma fans, the people who loved our certain
1: type of movie. Uh, and, and I think it's very easy to be passionate about that. You know, that's definitely a theme I picked up throughout the book. And it's just interesting because like I said earlier, everything that you're saying is so counter to what so many people inside creative fields tend to say, you know, like creating art for the audience, creating a product for the people who are going to enjoy your movie and not making everything, I guess I centered or me centered. Um, It's just so interesting reading from that perspective. And I think that's, that all circles back to that appeal of, the Troma brand kind of segwaying off your answer. You talked about the importance of branding and obviously one of the biggest parts of your job working with Troma. And even with your earlier positions, it was a lot of branding and you describe branding as establishing trusted customer uh, expectations. Uh, Can you talk about kind of fostering that and creating a, a loyal fan base and people who, when they go and sit down for you know, a trauma team release, knowing what they can expect out of it.
0: It ties very much into branding. And it's very interesting because here I am, you know, 20 some odd years later, and I still draw on these experiences and these lessons nice. in, in my work today. And, and one of the things I do now as a CMO, chief marketing officer for several companies is talk about, you know, what is their story? What is the brand story? And, mm. and again, pulling off my experiences here, what many brands, when they think about branding, one of the mistakes a lot of people do, they think it's about them, but but your story, your brand story is never about you, right? The hero of your story is always, has to be your customers. It's, it's, it's the people you're serving, right? They're the hero of your story. And that's what they're going to relate to. If you make your story about yourself and about us, you know, it doesn't work, right? A strong brand is a strong brand because of the outcomes and the emotions, you know, how it makes people feel uh, when they think about the brand. It's not the features the product has, you know, it's not, it's that feeling that, that, that the brand conveys. And the way to touch someone emotionally is to involve them in the stories, to make the story Mm -hmm. about them, to make them the hero of your story. So I think that, that lesson carries through almost in any branding exercise. And today it's more important than ever because You know, in the current retail environment, in the current situation where you have virtually any consumer can speak directly to a manufacturer. You know, there's no longer this layer of the retail channel because everyone can go direct now because of the internet. Um, It's more important than ever for a brand, no matter what business you're in, is to be true to that story and to be true to your ultimate end user. You know, part of the reason why the music industry went through such disruption, you know, a few years back when when streaming uh, came around and the MP3s and streaming and everything, was because up until that point, the music industry never had any interactions with the consumer of music. Right? Their customer right. was always the middleman. It was it was literally like the rack jobber who supplied. Record albums to the retail stores, right? So the right. record industry never had to have an understanding of their actual end user, the person who listened to the music, because that wasn't the per- that wasn't the person they were selling to. They were selling to the middleman. Today, technically, middlemen exist, but in reality, there's no such thing as a middleman because everyone has the opportunity to deal le- deal directly with any company of any size um, right. because of the internet and social media, etc. So it's more important than ever for you know, people thinking about their brand to understand and include their end user, the ultimate end user, whether that's the direct customer or not. They have to understand who they're serving, who their outcome uh, delivers to. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. And that, that really makes sense with the fact that, you know, especially with Troma, and this started really with you, they they understood the importance of doing that direct connection to fans. And you you mentioned the book, taking advantage of, you know, obviously going to events where people were and, you know, you talk about giving out t-shirts, you know, having swag on you all the time to connect with people directly. Um, But then even getting into, you know, the internet age, you talk about taking advantage of chat rooms before chat rooms were really even a thing that people were thinking about. You were in forums. Now, I mean, Lloyd is incredibly active on social media, the Troma brand, like, really thrives in that social media world where it's direct like a fan is going to tweet this movie sucks or this movie's awesome the minute they watch it and you have that direct feedback and i think you really understood which is amazing that early on the importance of like with the movies we're making with this rabid fan base we have to make that direct connection and have a conversation whether that's the toxic q a's that you were doing whether it's going to conventions and connecting with people one-on-one i think that connection with the fan base is really important. You talk a lot about serving the fans, but also one of the appeals of trauma from a creative side is the amount of freedom that a creative gets. So how do you find that balance between offering creative freedom to the creators involved while also not changing up too much the formula of what makes it successful for an audience?
0: Well, the good news is a lot can be done in the editing room. Editing room. <laughs> so so. hey. Right. You can you can um, give people a lot of freedom on the set and try a lot of different things as long as ultimately you, you know what you want to do and can piece together the the right end product right. in, in post production. Um, but I think a lot of it too is going into any uh, uh, collaborative creative venture with an open mind that that you know maybe the way you thought it was going to be at first isn't ultimately. Mm-hmm the best way it should be. And maybe there is a turn it's going to take um, through doing that's going to make it different in a way that might be better or might not be better, but you should at least still be open to it. So I think, again, a lot of that has to do with um, Lloyd Lloyd's style as a director. A lot of it has to do with, again, um, independent, the independent film environment and the low budget film environment where you have to, you know, just make things work sometimes uh, against all odds. And, and that right. leads sometimes to some creative decisions that no one anticipated. That's, you know, part of that process. And it's interesting, you know, over the years, even some more traditional um, entertainment platforms have adopted some of these things, even in, more in the mainstream. You know, you have a lot of TV shows now that go in with very loose scripts, and, and it's up to the actors to um, really create the dialogue on the spot. From right. from an outline, so there's a shape of the story, but but there's not a, a strict script. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where there's certain things where the, the written word is so important that you know the actors don't have the flexibility to change a single word or even a pause. Um, and I think they're both valid approaches, right? Uh, you know, trying to be true again to the outcome, to the end result, and and to serve the audience for that piece of work.
1: Can you give an example, maybe, of a time where you guys went in with a very clear idea of what you were going to do, and then maybe an actor or director or someone on set or even in the editing room did something that really changed the course from what you maybe expected to something that was even better?
0: Well, there's so, so many examples of that. Um, uh, one, one interesting example that also relates to your previous uh, question about giving some freedom. When we went out to shoot uh, Toxic Avenger Part 2, it was the script for one movie toxic avenger part two um but things were so and we we just kept shooting so much extraneous stuff and new ideas and this and that that when all was said and done uh we had been shooting so much film i mean so much film that it was it was clearly going to be way too much footage to edit into one movie and so the idea um up, which again, this had not been done. Now it's done all the time, and we realized sort of halfway through that we should be really making two movies, not one movie. And, and what we were really out there shooting was not just Toxic Avenger two, but Toxic Avenger two and Toxic Avenger three. Um, and so that created quite a shift in in the direction and the focus of things. Um, but ultimately, was a great decision because you know we, we got you know, two movies for the price of one and a half, so to speak, uh, you know, out of the footage. And now years later, you know, there've been many, many movies, including some, some big blockbuster, um, franchises that have taken on that practice of going out and shooting multiple sequels at the same time. Um, you know, back when we did that with those two movies, I'm not sure if anyone had actually done that before. Um, and it wasn't, the master plan up front it was something that evolved as as you pointed out you know during the course of production
1: well it's almost a prerequisite now like when a movie gets greenlit it seems like you have to have three sequels lined up to shoot directly after it seems like that's the way to make movies now and it definitely makes sense especially from a production side like the amount of money that you save from not having to go back out to all these locations bring all the same people out once again it really makes sense, but it is always interesting when you see independent films or organizations that are really setting the bar for what will become the trend. Um, So I think that's really, that's really interesting. You compare film production to, and, and everything you've talked about kind of speaks to this, but you've compared film production to being a startup on steroids. Like you're going from screenplay, you're going to the end of the production in a matter of months and you go through all the steps of a startup, but in this really fast paced way, can you talk about on a business level um, the similarities to a startup and and what the actual process feels like when you're going through making one of these movies?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, a filmmaker, especially uh, an, an independent filmmaker is, is every bit of an entrepreneur just as much as any tech startup might be. And they literally do everything That startup entrepreneur does, but they just do it in this concentrated period of time. But you know, you have to have some sort of a business plan or model. That's your your, kind of your script, your story. You have to raise money. You know, typically you're using other people's money, just like any startup is. You have to raise money. You've got to build that team very quickly. You've got to hire and fire and and you know put assemble the best talent you can assemble under the circumstances and the budget. Um, You have to create your product, right? You have to shoot the film. Uh, just like you know, creating your product or your prototypes and everything else. And then ultimately, you have to find your audience. You have to find customers for your product. You have to find that product right. market fit, as they say in Silicon Valley, and, and prove that people are willing to pay for your product, just like you have to prove that people are willing to buy tickets to go see your film. So I think really the the, the filmmaker is an entrepreneur, very much so. And in some respects, a much more disciplined entrepreneur than a lot of startup entrepreneurs are. And what I mean by that is that the, the filmmaking process, and this is true whether you're making a, a, a no-budget, low-budget film or whether you're making a Hollywood blockbuster, everything is, is living and dying on a day-to-day basis. You know, When you make a film, you've got a production schedule day by day. Um, you know exactly who's needed on each day, what props are needed, what costumes are needed, the location. Uh, if you're good at filmmaking, you have a backup plan. For every day so that if you're shooting an exterior scene, uh, you have a, a nearby interior location that's available should the weather turn bad that utilizes the same actors and crew so you don't waste time and lose money. So that that kind of discipline on a daily basis is something that I actually think a lot of startup entrepreneurs can learn from because a lot of times okay. in the startup world, you're very busy and you're, you're always doing lots of stuff, but you may not be focusing on on things that are actually important on a day-to-day basis you know and in filmmaking you don't have that luxury you can't dilly-dally you know you've got a schedule you've got to shoot today in this location because if you don't get everything you need in this location today you can never go back to that location you know perhaps you know this actor is only available in this window so if you don't get all their scenes in that window everything gets messed up so there's a lot of discipline in filmmaking that is lacking in some respects sometimes in the uh, startup world and the startup uh, world can learn from that discipline um, part of part of that is if you don't mind me saying it, part of that is is understanding what's really important to move your mm-hmm. business forward so i learned very quickly when i was uh, acting in my first my first time as a production manager on set is what are the three things that are essential to make a movie right you have to have right. a camera <laughs> you can't make a movie without a camera you have right. to have film in the camera right Uh, uh, Today, not film, but you have to have digital storage and battery life to, to operate the camera And then you have to have actors and actresses to get in front of the camera and tell your story If you don't have those three things, nothing else matters It doesn't matter if you have the best screenplay by the best screenwriter in the world It doesn't matter if you have a fantastic director, the greatest director on the planet can't make a movie without a camera, film, and actors, right? right? So you have to have those three things. So then you learn to structure every day around making sure that those three things are going to be there, you know? Right. Uh, is, is Do you have sufficient film for the next day's shoot? Where's the camera truck going to park the night before the shoot? How's the camera truck going to get to the location? Uh, who are the actors and actresses needed for that day? How are they going to get to the set? Are you sending a car to pick them up to make sure that they wake up on time, that they show up on the set on time? and even lowly trauma with our, our negative budgets, if we had an actor and actress that needed to be in a location on a certain time, we would send someone to pick them up, wake them up in the morning, wait outside their door, drag them out of bed if need be, and make sure they showed up <laughs> on the set. Now, we wouldn't right. send the limousine. We'd send a production assistant in their personal vehicle with all the garbage on the floor, but we would still send someone to wake up that actor or actress and drag them to the set so they were there on time. Because if they weren't there, we, we couldn't do anything. In business, I think we don't focus on those important things. You know, we we, we could be very busy for months on end, but are we busy with the things that are really going to move our business forward? So I always, when I talk to businesses, I suggest to them, you know, what is your equivalent of the camera, the film, and the actors? You know, what are the three or four things that are really essential to move your business forward? And are you paying attention to them on a daily basis?
1: You mentioned, you know, being prepared having backup plans, was there a moment in your production career that taught you that lesson, maybe the hard way? Or was it something you just went in kind of, I'm going to make sure that these things never happen to start right off the bat?
0: Yeah, I'm sure there, you know, I made many mistakes, especially at the beginning. But the good news is, you know, when, when I came into Trauma, obviously, Lloyd and Michael and the Trauma team had, had already had quite a bit of experience. And, and Lloyd, you know, is very good at knowing things that are likely to go wrong because he's experienced it all right. so he was pretty good at laying out the the groundwork that you know if we're shooting here you got to have this and if we're doing this you got to have that and, and so I, I you know i i uh i learned by fire but but i learned pretty quickly and you only have to make a mistake once or twice um you know to never make it again but mistakes always happen and i'll tell you a a, a unrelated story to trauma, but as related story to the film industry, when I worked at Satori, and it was very shortly after I had graduated college, I had the opportunity to go to the Cannes Film Festival because we were premiering a film there. And the film that we were premiering there was the film, Tim, which was Mel Gibson's first film with Piper Laurie. So this mm. was an Australian production, but here's, here's the, the kicker. So Australian films back then were much slower paced and very different from an American film. So when we acquired the U.S. rights to that movie, we went ahead, we hired a Hollywood editor, and we re-edited the film for the U.S. market because it was just dreadfully slow, the original version. Right. And we literally took out 18 minutes from that film without removing a single scene. So that means <laughs> extensively re-editing that movie. So my job as a young, you know, fresh out of college, green kid, the good news was, hey, you're going to the Cannes Film Festival. That's going to be amazing. But your one job, the only reason we're sending is you you are going to physically bring the print, our print, the American print of the movie Tim with you on the plane. You're not putting it in the luggage. You're going to carry it on the plane. And you are (laughs) going to physically deliver it to the screening room, the theater in Cannes that's going to show it because we found out that the Australians are also going to be screening the Australian version of Tim there. And, And your one job is to make sure that in our screening where we invite our buyers and our partners to that they show our version of the movie. So right. that, that's your, your sole responsibility. So I'm all excited. I'm going to can, I get on the plane, I'm carrying these two film can film cans with me everywhere I go. It's like right out of the movie. Um, I go to the screening room the day before to meet the projectionist to figure out exactly where I'm going to be going, letting them know that there are two versions in this film that I'm going to be bringing them the right one. And, it's marked. Everything else is marked on it correctly. He said, no problem. Come at this hour. The next day, I show up with the film cans. I deliver them to the, to the projectionist, shake his hand. Everything's good. And like an idiot or an inex- inexperienced person, then I left. And I didn't stay to <laughs> see what happened. And sure enough, as sure as I'm sitting here talking to you, Eric, <laughs> they showed the wrong version of the film, Tim. And, and I almost got fired and I was beside myself and I was in tears. And, I, I, and I, to this day, I don't really understand how it happened because I delivered the right version. Right. I talked to the projectionist, but somehow the wrong version got screened and I got destroyed. So <laughs> sometimes, you know, the, the worst thing that you could possibly imagine still happens. And, and, and I have no idea to this day how, but it was a great lesson. And obviously I'm, I'm much more careful that I would not leave Without seeing with my own eyes that the correct version was being spooled on the projector, were I doing the same thing today?
1: So that's obviously one of many lessons that you've pulled, and and like you said, you've been what what year did you you leave trauma?
0: So I left trauma in 1994. So I was there okay. from 1987 to 1994, and when I left trauma, uh, they hired someone to replace me. They hired a kid named James Gunn who to replace <laughs> me. So. So one could argue, had I not quit trauma, I don't know, there might not be Guardians of the Galaxy. No. Well, I that's mean, not, James Scott is very talented. He would have succeeded no matter what.
1: Hey, there's no I. So you can say, we produced Guardians of the Galaxy, and that that's perfect. But um, so you've obviously been out of trauma for quite a while now, but you're still pulling these invaluable lessons. Did you consciously kind of know that you were pulling from that background? Did you just kind of catch yourself as you tell stories to people or give advice to people that you were referencing that kind of period of your life? Because obviously now, like, you just put out this book, which is, you know, filled with tons of valuable information. Um, Was it someone telling you, hey, you should write this stuff down? Did you just say, I'm saying this all the time anyway, it would just be easier to write it out and get it all out into a concise format? What inspired the writing of this book?
0: That's a great question, Eric. So what actually happened was, Well, first of all, yes, you're correct that, you know, throughout my post-trauma career because I had all these wild and crazy experiences and because everyone's always interested in the movie industry, I had many occasions to refer back to, you know, doing things at trauma. So I did always do that. But um, about five or six years before I wrote the book, I was um, pretty active as a dad blogger for a while when my kids were younger. So I was getting invited to various, um, you know, influencer events for different brands. And, and I was at an event for Ford, uh, the car company in Michigan. And during that event, they said they were going to have a um, something they called an Ignite presentation uh, event. And what an Ignite presentation is, is you get five minutes uh, and you're supposed to say something that's going to be interesting and expire and ignite some thoughts in people. You have five minutes and 20 slides. And every 30 seconds or whatever it is, or every 15, whatever the math is, but the slides change automatically during an even amount of time. So you don't have control of the slides. So you have to devise this clever presentation where the slides and you're talking, everything matches and you can't, you're not in control. When they say go, go five minutes, the mic goes off and that's that. And so I was trying to come up with, well, what could I present that would be interesting? And I wanted to do something that was visually interesting too. And somehow this idea of of doing a talk about trauma and how everything I know about marketing I learned from trauma or learned from the Toxic Avenger would be kind of a fun presentation because I could use, you know, images from the film and blah, blah, blah. So I put together that five-minute Ignite talk, and actually you could see that on YouTube. In fact, in the back of the book, there's a link to it on YouTube. I put that together, and the presentation went really well. It got a lot of laughs. People liked it. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> In the presentation, at the end of it, I say, you know, I could talk. I only have five minutes, but I could talk about this all day. Uh, I could write a book about it. You know what? I probably should. And literally, what as those words came out of my mouth, giving that presentation, <laughs> it dawned on me that yeah, maybe this is the the, the basis of something. And that right. kind of stuck with me. And then uh, about five years after giving that presentation. I actually sat down and said, okay, I'm actually going to do that. And and looked at the presentation again and outlined it further and, and and turned it into this book.
1: So the book's been out for a little bit now. Have you had anyone that's, that's shared feedback with you about how maybe they've taken a lesson and applied it in their own business? Have you, what's the, what's the reception of the book been so far? Yeah,
0: absolutely. The, the feedback has been terrific. And, um, uh, what's interesting is, um, I would say that of the five star reviews I have on Amazon, and they're all five star reviews, I should say, uh, more of them are from people who never heard of Trauma or The Toxic right. Avenger than people who had. Obviously, there are some favorable reviews from people who are fans of Trauma, but a lot of people have come up to me and a lot of people have reached out to me who read the book, who had no idea who Trauma was, who just um, really enjoyed getting some business and marketing tips in a way that wasn't, you know, do this, do that but rather storytelling and, and and anecdotes that they could relate to. And of course, everyone is always fascinated by the behind the scenes of the movie industry. So even if you weren't right. familiar with trauma, it's still stuff that most people can relate to. So um, it's been very interesting for me to see the reaction from people who don't know who trauma is as much as from the people who do know who trauma is.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. When I finished reading, I, I, my mom's a lit teacher and voracious reader, like reads tons of books every year. And so I finished the book and I just sent her a picture said, Hey, get ready to interview the author. really good book. You should check it out. And she, she just finished it. Um, She read through it really quickly, but she, she was halfway through and she was like asking me about, have you seen this movie and this movie? I was like, look, I don't know that you'll like the movie side, (laughs) but I just, just warning you, this might not be for you, but she really appreciated the book and she had no reference point outside of that book, that was kind of her introduction, but it really is the the lessons in it are incredibly practical, and the you know the stories are just I mean they're just so entertaining to read. Some of the background and the the experiences that you had, some of them probably weren't as entertaining to go through uh, with some of the production stories that you share. But um, it seems like I mean it, it seemed like a book that you had to write because everything that's in there feels like it's Really personal and comes from you know true to life experiences that have really helped you through your career. So yeah, it's a it's a tremendous book. And anyone listening, I'd recommend you guys pick up a copy, uh, definitely. So I almost forgot to ask you this. So I'm going to circle back really quick. I want to talk to you about directing for the first time. So you did direct for Trauma, uh, an infomercial, which I think I thought it was hilarious. I, I watched it. Um, that was kind of the cap on everything that I. Watch through. And so can you talk about how you wound up directing that? Um, Cause it's kind of a funny moment of just getting thrust into a position of doing something. Can you talk about that experience? Maybe the nerves that were involved and just what that experience was like doing something that you had never done before on that level?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was, um, it was somewhat nerve wracking. So basically we did an infomercial. Um, it was called the trauma commercial and it was a 30 minute Spoof of uh, late night infomercial infomercials, but at the same time, it actually was a real infomercial selling a real package of trauma uh, memorabilia. You know, stupid stuff: posters right. and uh, a, a VHS tape of trailers, a CD of, of theme songs from trauma movies. You know, a packet of trauma aroma perfume. Just <laughs> all sorts of wacky stuff. And but right. but you could really go online. You know, call up and order them. And actually we had made a deal with uh, um, Comedy Central to run it, you know, late night on Comedy Central. So oh, it was wow. a real a real thing. But as it was the the Troma commercial, it was going to be hosted by Lloyd and Michael. So they were going to be pretty much the hosts of the show per se. So um, that opened up an opportunity for me to sort of act as the director and, and be director since they were the ones going to, you know, really going to be on stage all the time and, and directing it. And it was a combination of in-studio, um, stuff so we had a set in the studio audience and everything for the infomercial part but then we also did these prepared vignettes you know highlighting the right. products and, and little funny things that we shot all over the place some of some of them were shot at lloyd's home we had a bunch of celebrity um endorsements everyone from andrew stevens the actor to stan lee uh right. from marvel and just you know all sorts of celebrity uh um endorsements and and we really put it together as as a, a real informational. So I was I was most nervous um, as a first time director. I was not nervous with the audience stuff because actually in college I studied theater and I had some experience stage directing. So I had directed oh, okay. plays a little bit. So I felt comfortable with dealing with the live audience and the stuff on stage. Where I was very nervous was you know getting all the sh- necessary shots from an editing perspective and making sure that I was actually. Right getting proper coverage especially with the little vignettes when we were shooting the little vignette segments I got very nervous about you know making sure I had all the right angles and sufficient coverage to put something together that made sense Um, but it all worked out in the end and you know and obviously I had uh, Lloyd and others there to help and I think uh, the show turned out pretty bizarre and pretty funny uh, at the same time.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to ask about that because I know for that to be something you just get thrown on you, it seems last minute uh, to be doing something like that. That's a pretty big task to take on, but it came out really well. So I, th- I think it still holds up as being as being pretty funny. So. Thank
0: you. Yeah. It's on YouTube. People can find it on YouTube. But I also think that the lesson there too, and this is where trauma excelled in terms of giving people a chance is, you know, when you're offered that kind of opportunity, no matter how, um, Scary it might seem, or how unqualified I might have felt. You have to do it. I mean, every every director, including Steven Spielberg, at one time had never directed before, right? Mm, you know, there's yeah. always a first time for everyone. So, so when you're given the opportunity to take that first shot and take a step up and do something that you haven't done before, um, just because you don't have the experience doesn't mean you won't be able to get it right or develop that experience. And if you don't give yourself the chance, um, you'll never know. So you have to be willing to stick your neck out and and, and go into uncharted waters and, you know, all all those cliche sayings, but they're cliche sayings because they're real. You know, you really do have to step outside of your comfort zone. How many more, how many more cliches can I come up with? (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, no, I think, I think what you hit on, I mean, everything you're saying is just what makes that brand successful. What's made you successful is just being able to, you know, you talk about in the book, just getting in over your head, like way over your head and seeing if you're going to sink or swim. And ultimately at the end of the day, the the goal is to, to finish the project. Um, you, you said the phrase in the book, it's better to be finished than perfect. And I think that that's true. I think that's really important to be able to jump into something, give everything you can. And at the end of the day, that's all you can do. Um, And sometimes you have things that work out amazingly and sometimes (laughs) things that don't, but you can always learn something. And I think um, the really inspiring thing is even the things that you mentioned, because you do share some things where, you know, on paper, they could be horrible things, but you've pulled lessons from those experiences that have helped you, obviously, to this day. So yeah, I really, really love the book. Definitely want people to check that out. Is there anything else? I I know you're working on a few other things. You've got a a screenplay in the works, a a novel you're working on as well. Um, If people want to keep up to date with what you're doing and see more from you, uh, what's the best way to do that?
0: So you can find me online on Twitter. I'm at SASS, S-A-S-S. You can go to my website, jeffreysass.com or jeffrey sass.club because i'm also the cmo for the new domain name extension dot club c-l-u-b uh, the book uh on amazon you can find the book by simply going to www.toxicavenger.marketing and that's a kind of a marketing hack and a little shortcut if you go to that domain name it'll take you right to the books page on amazon so you don't have to search for it you don't have to remember my name or remember the name of the book just go to toxicavenger.marketing and you're one click away from getting the book. Um, and um, yeah, if you Google me, I'm I'm pretty easy to find online because I've been there for a long time.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope everybody checks it out again. This, I thought the book was absolutely incredible and full of really good information and it's really short. So <laughs> anybody can, can jump in and, and really dig through it. I, I really couldn't put it down. I p- I picked it up and just started reading through and it really is like, some of the, some of the situations you describe are stranger than fiction. There's some really interesting stories in there. So, but um, yeah, thank you so much for taking time to, to sit down and talk with me. And uh, I know the audience is really going to appreciate the, the perspective you brought. Thanks for listening to the film school podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show,
0: don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. So you won't miss a single episode.